everyone, and welcome to the Forecast Fest. I'm Kate Baldwin, here with my colleagues, Harry Enton. Shalomi, everybody. And in for John Avalon today, the one, the only, my friend with a photographic memory, even though he denies it, John Berman. It's only racy photos No, I remember. No, you literally remember everything. Everything. <laughs> everything. Popeye's chicken, those are the photos. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of Wendy's thrown in there. It's mm. remarkable how you make that sound nasty. <laughs> that was the dirtiest thing I've ever heard of. I know. Life. This, he, this is how he, he can be like, hello, everyone. I'll be like, ew, creep factor. Pene marinara. You're crazy. But I love you. Anyway, on Tuesday, CNN released a new poll conducted by SSRS that covers a range of topics, including where voters stand on impeachment, Syria, and the 2020 election. We're going to dive into the numbers. There's quite a bit. Uh, So learn from it. We're going to break it down for you, what they say about the trend line in the 2020 race, but also what some of the numbers mean even before then for the president and the country. And there are cracks in the Republican firewall around President Trump. But do those cracks require a magnifying glass to see? We will discuss. First and foremost, though, the Iowa caucuses is about 100 days out. So for today's forecast, we're going to focus there. Harry. How are the Democratic candidates ranking in that wonderful state? Oh, the wonderful Hawkeye state, I do believe. Not the Buckeye state, as some people sometimes call it. Why would, Mixing up with Ohio. Just eyes, because it says I? I. There's eyes. There's four letters and then I. What's the pink eye state? Uh, I believe that is <laughs> the state Jersey. of delusion. New Jersey is the pink eye state. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll pump your gas there. Um, look, here, here's the key thing in Iowa that is so important. And basically what you have is that Biden and Warren – at this particular time, are hugged together in the low 20s. And this has been fairly consistent since August. And what's important here about Iowa that really separates it out nationally is that Buttigieg, you can make the argument, is in third place in Iowa. He's somewhere in the low to mid-teens, right with Bernie Sanders. And, of course, Iowa votes first. So if Buttigieg could potentially win there, and he may very well could, because essentially at this point, you know, I would only say that Biden and Warren combined have somewhere between a 55 and 60 percent chance of winning, which leaves 40 to 45 percent chance that one of those two won't win. Uh, That could change the entire dynamic of the field. You've spent so much time in Iowa, John. Please regale us with your... Stories from the trail. My Iowa stories. I prefer Iowa to New Hampshire, first of all. Uh, <gasps> no, no, this is, he's got a real Iowa bias. M- most reporters do because they're nicer in Iowa and the events are more spread out geographically, and that True. means that I think that each voter actually gets more direct contact with the candidate. Um, so I think that the voters in Iowa have such a, a, a serious decision process that they go through when picking the candidates. Biden and Warren bunched up, though. I mean, I don't see that lasting all the way through. Well, I I guess that's the real question, right? I mean, it's been pretty steady since August. But, you know, as Biden and Warren have sort of gone after each other, um, you know, perhaps or at least Biden's gone after Warren. Warren kind of stays in her own sort of lane there. There is going to be this craving for this third alternative, right, Uh, or a fourth alternative. And essentially, you know, if you were to look, what does this most look like? Uh, You know, Steve Kornacki, my dear friend at MS, has said it reminds him of the 2004 race, right, where you essentially had Dean and Gephardt sort of up there. And then you had Kerry and Edwards kind of a little bit back. And then eventually people got sick of the top two. And then the third and fourth place people ended up finishing um, in first and second. And so – 
I'm not sure it can last. But at this point, you know, if you want to make the argument that Warren is rising nationally, which we could get to. We will. Um, that's not the case in Iowa. It's really not. She has been steady at around 21, 22, 23 percent of the vote since the middle of August. And Joe Biden, who, you know, has either fallen or not nationally, has been steady in Iowa at about the same amount. Without an organization and without minority voters. That's the key difference, right? That's the key difference between Iowa, which probably allows a Buddha judge to come in and capitalize on the state of Iowa. People who judge is going nowhere with non-white voters. Non-white voters are a very small percentage. Of he the hasn't Iowa gone electorate. anywhere yet with Correct. non-white voters. Correct. But, uh, but of course, momentum comes out of Iowa. At least some momentum. Well, then when you hit New Hampshire, that's right. That's the question: Is can Buddha Judge sort of take Iowa, use it as a launching pad, then go on to New Hampshire, and then maybe that problem he had with non-white voters goes adios amigos, goodbye, see you later. What is it about Buddha Judge in Iowa? Is it is it uh, is it just is it ground game? Hasn't he opened maybe the most, if not tied with, I don't know, Elizabeth Warren and opening the most offices? In he's Iowa? got boatloads of money. Uh, so he's been yeah. spending an organization there. He has got a Midwestern appeal. Now, I don't know as much about Indiana <clears throat> as, as some people here. <clears throat> Baldwin. Hello. <clears throat> but it does begin with I and so does Iowa. Yeah. No, but it so is, we're all the same. It is thematically, I think closer than some other states that people who just can focus Iowa-ish. on that. So that, yeah. you know, what strikes me is, is you did what I think was the most important early interview with Pete Buttigieg, inter- introducing him, I think, in many ways to the country, even before the town meeting, they got so much buzz. Yeah. That Pete Buttigieg was actually running for the middle of the country. He was positioning himself to be the Midwestern Reds Trump state yeah. candidate. Yeah. Um, so that's why I think that he may be connecting in Iowa. And, and I would just argue, you know, there have been candidates before who have done better in the Middle West than they've done, say, nationwide. You know, you can think about a Paul Simon in 88, a Dick Gephardt in 88, a Bob Dole on the Republican side in 1988 or even in 96, although we actually did slightly worse in 96 there. But the point is, is there is this potential sort of home region effect that we also see in New Hampshire, right, where the candidates from next door Massachusetts and Vermont tend to do better. I think there's an argument to be made that the candidates next door to Iowa tend to do better in part perhaps because they sort of speak Iowa. Can I just say one other thing, though? You talked about um, 2004 in the Democratic race. I think the one thing Pete Buttigieg has to be worried about is that it's not 2016 Republican version where Marco Rubio does really well compared to what people thought he would. Finishing third, there's no moral victory, I think, anymore in electoral politics. Don't, don't, don't say that to, I don't know, Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, who are all banking on now. I mean, I feel like the ranking has, has slipped. Like Steve Bullock's now like, if everyone finishes in the top five, <laughs> then they definitely have a chance yes, coming out I'm of Iowa. If I'm breathing air the day of the <laughs> Iowa caucus, don't be mean. then it's a victory. Don't be mean. But that's, I mean, they, they are going to, you can already see the writing on the wall that there are many a candidate who's going to claim a moral victory when they place fourth and fifth it's in a Iowa. It's a ticket to ride. A ticket to ride, my friends. So that's the state of play in Iowa. Let's look at the national view because there are some really interesting new polling, CNN polling conducted by SSRS that's coming out. And it is different from the trend in Iowa, Harry, when you look at the top. Uh, Yeah, I would say so. So we got the former vice president, Mr. Biden, at 34 percent, Elizabeth Warren, 19 percent, Bernie Sanders, 16 percent, Buttigieg, 6, Harris, 6, 
Klobuchar three and O'Rourke three. I read off those last two because this counts as a qualifying poll for them. That's, Look, that's important. That's important. Klobuchar is now just one qualifying poll away. Look, with Biden, our last poll had him at 24. He's now at 34. Is that jump real? I don't know about that. But what I will say is that, you know, if you just take a look at all the average of all the polls, it consistently has him nationally at about 30 percent. Some polls have him below. Some polls have him above. But the deal is, folks, here. What, what, how does Biden say it? Uh, here's the deal. Or Literally. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Um, Every he, time. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Uh is that Joe Biden is not going anywhere nationally. He is, no matter what they seem to throw at him, he's consistently around 30% nationally. Is that going to ultimately be enough to win the nomination? I don't know. But, you know, in a field of about 475 different people, it's not a bad place to be to know that you have that sort of block of voters. And indeed, in our poll, 59% of Joe Biden voters say that their mind is made up for the supporters of the other candidates, it's just 40 percent of all voters say their minds are made Twitter's up. Twitter's been really surprised by this CNN Since poll. Since Twitter is so I know, accurate. But, I, but I, I think we need to address this. It's okay. sort of like the elephant in the room here. Twitter is shocked <laughs> the, by the fact that, that Biden has this 15-point lead in our poll because the Twitter narrative, another just horrifying, awful word, <laughs> is, that, is that Warren has been on the rise right. and it is the co-front runner nationally. And at least in this poll, she's not. No, she isn't. Uh, look, if you were to take a look nationally, what you see is, again, that Warren is closer to Biden than our polls suggest. But the average of polls has her in the low to mid-20s and has Biden at around 30 percent. He is still ahead in the average of polls. And I think what ends up happening is people tend to take the one piece of data that is good for their candidate and sort of run with it without taking into account all of the data that's really out there. And that's what I'm trying to do here is essentially tell you, look, the average of polls looks like ours insofar as that Joe Biden is not falling away and that he is out ahead in this race right now. And okay, so forget that top line. I think some of the most interesting bit is how far he's ahead in key groups in key areas. He's about 30 points ahead when it comes to moderate or conservative Democrats, right? He's about 30 points ahead when he, when you're looking at um, non-white voters, black voters. Is it non-white voters or just black Non-white voters? in this particular poll uh, because we don't have the sample size for African-Americans. But I can tell you that his lead among African-Americans, if anything, is a Even little bit Even greater. I mean, yeah, that's a good point. Vo- uh, older voters, 45 and over, not saying that 45 is old. Yeah, that's thanks. just the way thanks. the Democrats. That was a dig at me. That was. I'm not much older that than 45. Was. There was side eye. And what difference does it make? Once you're above that age, you're old. <laughs> oh, my Bye. gosh. Um, and those without a college degree, he's about 30 points ahead. I mean, that, I'm going to say in my non-scientific analysis, that's not leading. That feels like running away with it when you look at kind of those groups. And if you're about 30 points ahead, that's bananas. Uh, look, if you have paid any attention to the voice that is penetrating your eardrums right now, I have been harping on what I call the hidden Democratic Party, right? Moderate. Very different from the silent majority, I think. Maybe. Oh, Um, wait. Berman says no. Or not. I mean, or not. Because if you're talking about the silent majority, you're talking about people who aren't necessarily occupying the liberal intelligentsia. Mm -hmm. You you, you are perhaps talking about those non-college whites in the middle of the country. Sorry. No, but I think that's, you know, I've basically been saying if you were trying to build a majority in this party, you can do so by going after non-white voters, 
center of the electorate voters, non-college grads, and folks over the age of 45. And although Joe Biden is at best in a tie among, say, liberals, whites, uh, college grads, and younger folks, as long as he is competitive with those groups, if he's running away with those in the center, non-whites, non-college grads, and older folks, he's going to win the nomination. That's the bottom line. And if you looked at our last poll, he was doing worse with those groups, center, non-white, non-college grads, older folks, than he was in this poll. And by expanding his advantage among his core constituency, then he is going to do perfectly fine in this poll. Okay, wait. Harry, stop talking because I would like to get John Berman to weigh in on something where you and I are diametrically opposed when Mm -hmm. it comes to the general election hypothetical head-to-head matchups because I have a bone to pick with them. Harry and I feel differently about this. I think general election, hypothetical matchups, when you're in the middle of the primary still, that they shouldn't matter for anything because I believe the psychology of the people that you're asking this question of completely changes when you have an actual nominee that is listening to the question. Pick a side because right now the hypothetical head-to-head in this new poll is from Buttigieg on up, they're beating Trump 50 percent or more. Um. From my years of experience um, in, in working with you, I know that definitionally I agree with you because I have to agree with you. Starting from the baseline of I agree with you because it's you. Stop. Um, I will but say. Yes. I will say. I think that the head-to-head matchups are only useful. They're not actually useful in a predictive sense. Okay, they're not okay. predictive. What I do think they're interesting is it tells you how the voters that we're polling are. Thinking about this comparison mm-hmm. are weighing this choice. Uh, and I think that this year it's more instructive than ever because the electability question has become more in front and center. So it just shows me how voters are thinking. Uh, and so I, I put it into the equation, but not in a predictive way. I think that was John Berman trying to walk a fine line. Uh, he walked the line oh, no. in the life nope. of my time. Nope. Um, if you were to look at the monthly averages between Biden and Trump, every single month since the beginning of this year, Biden has led in the average by anywhere from six to ten points over Trump. That's exactly where Paul has it right now, ten points. The fact is, if you were to look at the 2018 midterm election, and this is something that the voter study group did, a much higher percentage of voters were locked into their choice. That is, they kept their same choice from 2017 for 2018 when they were voting for the House than in a study that was done prior in the decade on an earlier election. So what I'm sensing here is that voters are much more locked into their choice in the general election than they have been oftentimes before. And that is walking lockstep and key with the fact that Donald Trump's approval rating seems to be lockstep and key. And indeed, if you were to look at our poll, what do you see is that the Democratic candidates, whether they be Buttigieg, Warren, Biden or Sanders, they all lead by 82 points or more among those who have an unfavorable view of Donald Trump. And that, I think, is the most key point in this. And that is that voters are voting how they feel about Trump, which may make the candidate that the Democrats ultimately select to be not as important as we might think. And the poll numbers right now be more predictive than they might otherwise have been in prior years. Can I say two things? Number one, first of all, put a pin in that Harry Enten statistic, which I think is the most important statistic that Harry Enten focuses on, which is the unfavorable view of both candidates, which candidate do you support? Because that was a key group for Donald Trump I in have, 2016. I have more on that. That's a key group in 2016. You were just getting that. I know we'll get to that more later. So we'll put a pin in that. But this 
back to walking the line between your dispute here, because I actually do think there is there's an answer where you're both right. I think that for a candidate like Joe Biden, who's so well known Mm -hmm. that that the head to head matchup might mean a lot more than it usually does. People know Joe Biden. People know Donald Trump. So that when you ask them who you prefer, they have a pretty good idea or someone like Pete Buttigieg. They don't know about Buttigieg. So they would need to learn more. So in the sense, if you're comparing Biden to Buttigieg or Biden to Harris or Mm -hmm. someone in the Democratic primary, that's a little apples to oranges because of people's knowledge of them overall as a candidate. I'm still claiming victory, even though now I'm starting to question myself. But I'm just going to continue to claim victory because, well, that's what you do. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, top Republicans are pushing back against the president's agenda. Is Syria finally a bridge too far? Is it more that there are too many things piling up that they can't defend all at once, though, coming from the president? Or are people making too much of all of the talk of there's a crack in this firewall of Republican support of the president? Then we have a new view on where voters stand on impeachment and what all members of Congress can take from that data right now. That's up next. We're back. So President Trump has declared a major breakthrough in Syria, essentially declaring victory over a crisis that is anything but a victory right now, since it appears at the moment the real winners are Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, Turkey and Russia. You'll recall the president moved two weeks ago to withdraw all U.S. troops from Syria, which effectively greenlit the military incursion from Turkey, putting in grave danger the U.S. ally on the ground that has been fighting against ISIS in Syria with us and for the United States, the Kurds, also allowing more than 100 ISIS prisoners to escape. The move so outraged even his own party that 129 Republicans in the House, two-thirds of the House, uh, Republicans, including all Republican leaders, passed a resolution rebuking the president's move. And then in the Senate, you've got Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, even former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley, all speaking out against this. I say all of this because this is the question. Has Syria and all of it happening at the same time become a bridge too far for Republicans? CNN in new polling has some really interesting numbers about Syria Harry, please take us through. Yeah. So I'm going to start off just on what the general electorate is saying and then we can get into the Republican. So we asked essentially five questions and I'll go through them quickly. How concerned are you about the situation in Syria? 43 percent of Americans nationwide say they were very concerned. 32 percent said somewhat concerned. The rest were either not too concerned or not concerned at all. That totaled about one fourth of the electorate. Do you approve of Trump withdrawing troops from Syria? 42 percent approve, 50 percent disapprove. Has the U.S. response to the military action in Syria been um, too tough, about right, not tough enough? Eight percent said too tough. Thirty-three percent said about right. Forty-two percent said not tough enough. When you combine the, the too tough and about right, about equals the not tough enough. Does the U.S. have a responsibility to remain involved in the ongoing conflict in Syria? Fifty-one percent of Americans say yes versus 43 percent says it does not. And how likely do you think it is that a change in U.S. policy in Syria will result in the reemergence of ISIS? 36 percent said very likely. 33 percent said somewhat likely. And again, you have that quarter that say either not too likely or not at all likely. Is it surprising or unsurprising that it seems that broadly speaking, not breaking this down by party, the country is very much to me, it shows divided on this where it hasn't the reaction from Washington hasn't been so divided. Uh, I'm. 
it looks a lot like the Trump approval numbers to mm-hmm. me is what it looks like. Good point. Um, and I think that the population may not be as focused on Syria as people in Washington and Congress. Uh, I have not seen the Republican breakdown. I'm very interested to see what that is because I have my suspicions that this is the sort of the Trumpification of a national security issue, and it sort of has changed the prism with which it's viewed. Yeah. I, look, let me also point out, I want to jump into those Republican numbers, but Quinnipiac asked it a different way. Do you approve or disapprove of President Trump's decision to remove U.S. military support from the Kurds in northern Syria? And in that poll, only 30 percent of Americans approve or voters approve overall. So that is somewhat more re- sort of look mm-hmm. like the response in Washington. But among Republicans um, in our own poll, 71 percent of Republicans and GOP leaners approve of Trump removing troops from Syria. Fifty four percent say the um, U.S. reaction to the military action in Syria has been about right. Only 27 percent say it's not been tough enough. Twenty-eight uh, percent of Republicans say we have a responsibility to remain in Syria, but 66 percent say no. So you do see, as John is looking at me with this very interesting look, uh, you do see that Republicans are mostly siding with Trump, but they're not as strong. Not as strong. They're not as strong right, as you would expect on the just top say line. This, just say this without context. Sixty-six percent of Republicans do not think there is a responsibility right. to stay in a fight against a terrorist organization that has beheaded journalists, killed tens of thousands of people. Republicans don't think we need to stay and fight that. Without even getting into the merits of the discussion, what I can tell you is that if you replace the name Obama in there with Trump and put us back in a time machine, I, I just have to believe they would be opposite or worse. Absolutely. Or, or you know, it would be more than opposite exactly. numbers, more than flipped over. Yeah, you know, and it gets to historically speaking, at least for the last 40 or 50 years, the whole Republican Party trying to claim the national security mantle, the Democratic Party being the party of peace. It, it just this puts it all on its end. And I actually think the Democrats, to an extent, um, they're in a different place because Trump's doing it than they might be otherwise were this President Obama. That's Great not, point. I think that's 100 percent true. Um, is that yeah. these are issues that most voters and Americans aren't really thinking about. I, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm at my son's baseball game. I wonder what's going on in Syria right now, you know, with the Kurds. I, I really do. Want, most Americans aren't thinking about that. But you know how you say it? Do you care about protecting the United States against terrorism? Right. That's, well, I think that's a rather important point, Kate, which is that if you look at our question, it, you know, it asks, does the U.S. have a responsibility to remain involved in the ongoing conflict in Syria? That might get a different response yeah. than do you think, you know, the U.S. should be there because there might be terrorists and ISIS and so on and so forth. And I think that's rather important, especially on these issues in which the opinions aren't so fully formed, is it really does matter how the question is being asked. And that might have something to do with the fact that, you know, do you approve of Trump withdrawing troops from Syria? We get 43 percent approval versus how Quinnipiac asked, do you approve or disapprove of President Trump's decision to remove U.S. military support from the Kurds in northern Syria? Those are two different questions. Yep. They're getting at the same thing, but they're two different questions. And obviously there is a gap there that is explained somewhat by that question and the way it was framed and asked. But go back in the time machine. You know, the, the Donald Trump says he, what he says he is and, of course, he did in 2016, ran on – getting out of Mm -hmm. foreign conflicts on, quote unquote, bringing our troops home. But go back to kind of that impact on elections just in recent, right? I mean, think of 2004, the whole concept of 
obviously the war that we were in the middle of and what that meant for George W. Bush. 2008, Obama ran on his opposi- opposition mm-hmm. to the Iraq war. Do we need to go back to that conversation between him and Hillary Clinton so many times? And then in 2016, of course, as I said, that's what the president ran on. And depending, I think it's going to be, fa- it is fascinating to see, depending on who the Democratic nominee is, they, this could be playing out, this conversation, because it won't go away, folks, in a very different way, because you have Joe Biden, who supported the Iraq war. You have Elizabeth Warren, who said that she wanted out of the Middle East, but then had to clean it up. And then you have Pete Buttigieg, who served in Afghanistan. It's I think it's really fascinating what how Democrats will respond to this. It depends who the Democratic nominee is. I think it's an it will be easier for a Democratic nominee to pitch him or herself as pro-national security and interventionalist than it will be for Donald Trump to convince, um, you know, peace-loving, long-hair demonstrators, you know, who (laughs) are hippies. Exactly. The hippie people who never want war. I don't think he's ever going to win those people over war. You know, the flip side, I think, might be be possible. So— we're in this interesting place with Syria, which was Republicans were outraged and came out and spoke out against it. There's a little bit of let's just call it squishiness now with are they so much outraged now that the president is pushing for this ceasefire and some kind of a safe zone in Syria? Kind of unclear. But one area where you definitely are not seeing a Republican revolt, at least yet, is impeachment. But there is a new high number on a key question for Americans right now, which is should the president be impeached and removed from office? For the first time, a new CNN poll shows that 50 percent of Americans say yes. But the partisan divide of that very same question is very important, Harry. Yeah, I mean, just 6 percent of Republicans want to impeach or remove Trump in our latest poll. And the average is a little bit higher than that. It's probably a little closer to 10 percent. But the vast majority of Republican voters, Republican Americans are not moving on this question. And that provides a safety zone for the president of the United States who will essentially say to those GOP lawmakers, hey, our voters are behind me. You don't want to get primaried. Stay with me. And obviously in the House, that doesn't matter so much because Democrats control the majority. But when you need 67 votes in the United States Senate and you're going to need 20 Republican senators at a minimum to go along, if you're a Republican lawmaker and most of them are in pretty red states, how can you look at a poll number like this? Six percent want Trump impeached remove and say, you know what? It seems like a good idea. I'm going to go along with that. And make no mistake. No matter what any Republican in Congress tells you and Democrat in Congress tells you, they watch these numbers. They watch. They one. They they pull this. They. I mean, it is the most ridiculous thing when yes. they take some holier than that position that doesn't involve. Like the reason Mitt Romney felt he could come out is because he's actually polling better than Donald Trump in in Utah right now. Like the reason that other Republicans aren't is because they they know their polling in their primary. I think it dictates to a large extent the strategy here, which is that the White House is trying to partisanize like it. this discussion uh, and it's had some success only in the sense that he has 90 percent backing him saying they don't want to impeach and remove now. And the Democrats got what they wanted. Their first big goal was to win support for the impeachment inquiry. We don't ask that question in our poll. Other people do. And support for the impeachment inquiry is actually higher. Yes, it's uh, in the it's in the low to mid 50s, depending on which poll. So higher. We've like than, moved, I feel like we're in the, like a new yeah. chapter of this. So, one, right? so Pelosi won that. Yeah. Pelosi won the green light to go ahead with the inquiry and, and is pushing the boundary ever so slightly uh, on impeach and remove as well. I think they're absolutely looking at these numbers. I, I will say that a successful political strategy 
for Donald Trump may not be a successful long-term strategy for someone like, say, named Cory Gardner mm-hmm. or Susan Collins who are in purple states who are in swing states and will have to cast a vote. And it makes their li- – I do think it makes their life difficult. Not impossible, but a difficult. Well, add – to the 6 percent of Republicans support impeach and remove, add to that the 90 percent approval rating that Republicans have of the president. You look at that. If that stays, I will declare right now and shout it from the rooftops that there is no way that the Senate, no matter what happens in the House, there's no way that the Senate will vote to remove the president from office. No way. I mean, unless they literally have Trump on tape no. saying – no. You think they, no. if they had him on <laughs> They have, they have they the rough but if they, but they what, do have what, what it if on they, had they have the transcript They have a the diplomat saying that he was told directly that the reason that aid was held up is because they wanted an investigation into political rivals. This whole thing was there's no quid pro quo. Uh, someone, someone told me in an interview maybe they didn't use the Latin, but that's exactly what it is. Well, you know, as long as they use some old language, you know, maybe old Hebrew or something along those lines, then that, that works. So fine. I, I will give you $2 if you know what quid, quid pro quo is in Hebrew. Oh, the hell that I know. Jeez. I okay. Don't, moving on. I don't think that's it. No, I don't think And you don't always have to sing when you're singing. When uh, you're speaking it's, Hebrew. A, it's the Torah portion. That's okay. how I sing it. Okay. No, I mean, look, that's uh, this I think is a question, right? If you look back at the Nixon impeachment uh, and saga, essentially, mm-hmm. Those numbers tended to move in lockstep with how Republican um, congressmen acted, right? As mm-hmm. more Republicans came aboard with impeaching or removing um, Nixon from office, more lawmakers did as well. Now, which was causing the other? I don't know. But I will I will agree. That's why it's important to pay attention to these poll numbers. Is it? Wait, are you saying it's possible there's like a chicken and egg conversation on that one? Oh, I think there's absolutely a chicken and an egg conversation on, on that one. I mean, we saw it. We saw on the Democratic side, right, with the impeachment inquiry before um, the impeachment inquiry started, only about three quarters of Democrats approved of it. And now about nine tenths do, 90 percent do versus the 75 percent. And that was when Pelosi moved. The Democratic voters started moving towards her point of view. Um, And I do wonder if Republican actors did, in fact, move, whether that could, in fact, adjust some of those numbers. But I'm not sure many of them want to take that risk. Isn't there some evidence, though, that – Strength of support or the intensity of the defense of the president among Republicans isn't quite what it was, even if numerically it's as high or higher? Well, I will say this is that we know that among the percentage of all voters, those who say they strongly don't want to impeach, remove Trump has dropped from 45 percent earlier this year to 37 percent now. So we have, in fact, seen some loosening of the screws where indeed the strength of wanting to hold on for Trump to hold on to office is perhaps a little weaker if even though the top line number among Republicans has stayed rather steady. I will say this and I don't need to go. So I get last comment. Um, I often wonder with big, important, sometimes complex things like all of the new information that comes out, like Bill Taylor's Mm -hmm. testimony and such. What the lag time is for it to if there are there isn't there. I haven't seen a bunch of Republicans come out to say this has changed the game for me. But I wonder if that just means right now or and if that can change when they sit and honestly marinate on it a bit kind of with the with it all being public, along with folks back in their um, back in their states. 
when it soaks in, does it change? I don't. There's no way to measure the. I guess the lag time there, but I find that fascinating. Yes, Kay, that's an amazing point. Thank you so much. So you get the last word and the last comment on your last word. That yeah. wasn't me. That was someone else that came into the. That's amazing, Kay. What an amazing point that was made. Thank you so much, Harry. You guys are way too nice to be today. Okay, with that, that's it for us today. Thank you so much for listening, you guys. If you like the episode, like what you're hearing, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. While you're there, please leave us a rating or a comment. It does help new listeners find the show. In the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter. I am at Kate Baldwin, John Berman. At John Berman. Harry Enton. At Forecaster Enton. That's E-N-T-E-N. I I just want to spell it. I don't want them to end up on Forecaster E-N-T-I-N's page. Is that a person? No, it's not. But just in case someone wants to make such an account. Special thank you, John Berman, for being here. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for including me. Thank you. Such a love fest. Stop talking, Harry. Special thanks to our team behind the scenes. Amy Eason, Lauren Rohr. I can't say Lauren's last name, but I can say Raj's last name, Makija, and David Toledo. Thanks, you guys. We'll see you back here next time on The Forecast Fest. Forecast Fest.